0: Well we come back to Hebrews chapter 1 and as we do so I'd ask you to turn there because we've got a passage that you really need to keep your eyes on uh, this morning as there is much said here. We want to look at this we've been tracking along at what this argument uh, is presented here what the argument is that is presented here and this argument of course is on the glory and supremacy of Christ and as you think about it it tells us much about Christ. In fact, in those first four verses, it is unbelievable how much is in here that God is speaking to us fully and finally by His Son as before He had spoke in times and in parts and in parcels through the prophets of old to our fathers. Now in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, His authoritative Son. This is the one that is appointed heir of all things, the one through whom He made the worlds, the, who is the, the radiance of His glory and the Express image of his person, who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one that, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we came to this key verse, because it's where the author of Hebrews continues to it. He says that he has become so much better than the angels, as he has, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's a statement that, as Christians, we wouldn't debate. Jews, if they were messianic, would not debate it. They would certainly say that this messianic king was greater than the angels. We certainly argue that Christ, as the Son of God, is greater than the angels. And so we need to think about this for a moment because there's a purpose to all of this. We tried to lay this out over the last couple of Sundays that what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in speaking to a people who themselves are Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, is make an argument that they cannot return to what they once had. They can't return there. Well, one of the key arguments that would be made on why they could is that the covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was given by God. The same as the New Covenant. Can't we just find shelter there? It's a little easier in the world to find shelter there. We won't be as persecuted if we're over there with our Jewish kinsmen. So can they do that? And the argument of this entire letter is no, you cannot do that. You cannot go back and park in former revelation when you've been given a fuller revelation in Christ. And the argument is going to be based on many things, but the part that we've been looking at the last two weeks is this parallelism between the first verse and the fourth verse, in which we see this argument that the prophets of old brought revelation on behalf of God. But He's spoken finally in His Son, who is the perfect prophet. In the same way, Christ is greater than the angels. Now, we would have to think about what do they do? What are these uh, angelic beings? What are they doing? Well, they are messengers. It's literally what the name means. They are messengers. But they have some other functions as well. And one of the points that uh, is going to be really important to our understanding of why this argument is being made is that the picture of the Old Testament is of a covenant that was mediated doubly by Moses and angels. So angels... Uh, mediating to Moses, who then mediates on behalf of the people of God. That's special. There's no doubt about it. Anyone would have recognized the importance of, of angels and uh, that these are beings created by God, glorious beings. So this would sound pretty important, and it was. In the Old Testament, we knew from looking at the Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant was glorious. And if you stopped there, it would seem like maybe you could park there, except... All you have to do is read the New Testament where you have places like 2 Corinthians where Paul says the New Covenant is so much more glorious that it's as if the Old Covenant has no glory at all. Now he's not saying it has no glory. He's saying that's how much more glorious the New Covenant is. But part of the reason the New Covenant is so much more glorious, well part of it can be found in the song we were just just singing about what we receive in Christ. But the mediator of the covenant is greater. See, on the one hand, you have Moses. Wonderful, right? Jews revered Moses. But part of the argument of this letter is Christ is greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. But you say, yeah, but angelic beings are greater than Moses. Okay, well, guess what? They too rank below Christ. Now, how are we going to make that argument? Because there were some Jewish schools of thought that said, you know, certain angels are really high up, there's a hierarchy of angels. In fact, Uh, In John Owen's exposition of Hebrews, he spends an extended time talking about how this letter is addressing even ranks of angels when it says things like, to which of the angels, as if there's a hierarchy, or did he ever say to any of the angels, given the idea that even the highest of angels this was not said to. The archangels did not have this said to them. So again, he's building an argument that's important for us to recognize that there is something important about Christ. He is not like the angels. He is not like the angels. And there are several ways that He isn't like the angels. But the first one is, referring back to verse 4, this more excellent name than they. What is this name? He is God's Son. God's Son. We looked at that last Sunday, didn't we? There's two scriptures referenced here. First, Psalm 2, which we looked at when we said that Christ is the heir of all things. He's been appointed the heir of all things Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we spoke about how in theology for 2,000 years we've spoken about the eternally begotten Son of God. But here it's putting a reference to this begottenness in time. And we explained or talked about that a little bit on how to understand that. But again, he then goes to another passage that's very related to that. Because remember in Psalm 2, there's a promise of an inheritance. You, my son, when you ask of me, I will give you the nations for an inheritance. Well, who is that said to? This special son. Well, who is the special son? We'll turn back to 2 Samuel 7, 14, the author says. What will you find there? You'll find a promise of God. 100% of God's grace, David didn't deserve it. David didn't earn it. It's of God's grace. God says, David, you've come asking Nathan, or telling Nathan more or less, that you're going to build a temple for me. I didn't ask you for it. I never told any of the people who came before you that this tabernacle wasn't enough. Now, God says, it will be done, just not by you. But in the meantime, I want you to know something. I'm going to build you a house. Again, it's important to see the relationship here, isn't it? God is saying, I'm the one who takes care of you. You don't take care of me. I don't need anything that you can do. I'm God, self-existent, self-reliant, glorious, eternal. I'm going to build you a house, David. And the house that I will build you will be a, a, a kingship, a throne, a posterity that will come after you. And there will be a king on that throne and his reign will never end. This is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. You can see how they relate. It's to this heir, to this future king, that God will say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask it of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. Now, that's a staggering statement. We say, you know, uh, the Davidic king would be king over Israel. but God says, no, he's going to be king over all the nations over everything that exists. He will rule and reign forevermore, forevermore. So this is at the heart of biblical theology. As I was trying to point to last Sunday, this is not merely a servant, it's God's Son, the only begotten Son, the King. Now today we're going to look at, we originally were going to look at two verses. If you look in your uh, bulletin, but I said we're just going to do verse 6 today. Uh, There's so much here. And I think really verse 7 will fall better with the verses that come anyway as we look at it. But I want us to to move into this from verse 4 again. Let's read it one more time. So again, speaking of of Jesus who by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." But when he brings again the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now I'm going to go ahead and read verse 7 so you can be stewing on it for next Sunday. And of the angels, he says, who makes his spirits, his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now even that will be a contrast because as you move to verse 8, after just saying this about angels, he says, but to the Son, he says, so, There's a contrast there. And we need to recognize that much of what this section of the Scriptures is doing is contrasting Christ with the angels. That's how he's going to make the argument he's greater than the angels. Because you can see what is said of angels and you can see what is said of him. And what is said of him is greater than what is said of the angels. Now, I want to return to something uh, as we think about two points. First of all, the timing of angelic worship in this text And secondly, the subject of angelic worship in this text. If we were to begin here by looking at the timing, I want to say something here as we venture into this again. It's important to keep in mind, because this has often, I think, gotten wrong, that this is not an argument to tell Jews not to worship angels. This was not a problem amongst Jews. Even the most mystic groups of Jews... Even the most mystics of them, you can go research this, like the Kabbalah uh, order of Judaism, right? It's very mystical and God speaks to us and all this sort of thing. They don't worship angels. Now, there are some that maybe exalt angels a little too high. They give them a little too, but it's not worship. They're very careful to say we don't worship angels. And certainly anybody in mainstream Judaism would say we do not worship angels. They are created beings. Uh, They are not on the same level of glory as God. And so it's important to say that is not what this argument is about. I'm going to ask you to keep in your mind that is not what the author of Hebrews is trying to convince his readers and hears of. He's trying to convince them about Christ and his role as mediator of the covenants. You've got a covenant here that we're trying to return back to. And again, the argument is you can't. Everything about the new covenant is greater and demands that you recognize that it's greater. All right. So, as we come to verse 6, building upon what we've looked at in verses 4 and 5, we want to recognize that this says something to us. We can just read it and see that it says something to us. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, there's something here about the timing of this angelic worship. And we'd be right to ask questions about it because it says that there is a time where God has said, let all the angels of God worship Him. That Christ is to be worshipped by the angels. And he gives us some clues in the text as to when it is. But we might first park here for one second and say, wait a minute. As God Himself, shouldn't it be that since their creation the angels of God have worshipped Christ? And the answer is yes, right? That is an obvious answer, yes. From the time that the angels were created, by whom and for whom? By Christ and for Christ, the angels would worship Christ. He is God. The angels are there to worship God. You see it throughout Scripture time and again. So yes, we would see that is is accurate to point out that yes, uh, the angels would have always worshipped Christ. There's no question about that. But We also want to recognize this text is telling us something temporally as well. We've gone through this. If you've been following Hebrews, this is one of the difficult things about this book. The one who owns all things eternally because he's God has been appointed heir. The one who is a glorious eternal king has been enthroned, right? You have these kind of things that seem almost like oxymorons because, again, as we've tried to explain This has to do with the mission that Christ was sent on, the economic mission, the incarnational work that Christ was sent on, that it's in this way. As the author tells you, the author tells you this, that when He had by Himself purged our sins, then He sat down, being exalted to the right hand of His Father, and in doing this has received a more excellent name than the angels and has been declared better than the angels. Now these things are difficult to wrestle with. Difficult to wrestle with. We've tried to wrestle with them each week. But we come to another one like this that says, even though he is the second person of the eternal trinity, he is God, there is a point in which God the Father says, let the angels of God worship him. Let the angels of God worship him. Well, how can we assess when that is? Well, let's look at the text. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn Into the world. Now, this phrase has a lot of complication to it, a lot of complication to it. We can begin immediately with the fact that uh, when did he bring the firstborn into the world? What's the reference here? There might be a a couple of ideas on what this means, but we've got to first start with this word again. Again. Because this is the heart of the question. It's much debated over this word uh, Pauline," which means to to have it happen again. right? So when uh, this says that he's brought him into the world again, what does this mean? Well, again, this is really the debate. I don't know what translation you're reading out of. If you've got a pew Bible, you heard something that sounded a little different than what I read out of the New King James. Listen again. In the New King James it says... But when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, I don't know about your ears, but when I hear that, it's when he brings him a second time. When he brings him again. But if you have your ESV, Pew Bible, it's not worded quite that way, is it? I believe it says, when again, and again. Somebody got it open that doesn't mind reading it out? And again. And again, again, when he brings. Those are different meanings, aren't they? Different meanings. The NESB goes along with the New King James on this, uh, whereas the King James and the ESV and some others have it the way you just read out of the the, uh, Pew Bibles. Now, which is right? Well, I'm going to make an argument here that one is right and it doesn't really matter because ultimately it's going to come to the same conclusion no matter how you interpret this phrase, but I still think... It's the word of God. We need to be careful with it. We need to think for a moment about what it is. So there's a word here, Pauline, again, that is tied to this word, esago, And that means to bring in. And they are linked in the Greek. And in fact, every time you see a structure like this, the word again should be linked very closely to again, or to brought in. So it would be brought in again. And that would lead us to say it's talking about bringing him in a second time. But as most of the scholars of this passage would point to, it falls in a passage that might ask us to break that way of thinking. Because look at the structure of this passage. Verse 5 gives you an Old Testament quote. And then halfway through that verse it says, and again. But when he brings again the firstborn into the world, it gives another quote. And then it says, and of the angels. So in other words, you've got Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture and they're linked with and And again, and and again, these are key words in this passage. So again, we want to look at the structure of the passage, and it makes a difference in how we would read this verse, even if ultimately the theology of it, it doesn't really make a difference. Let me give you my point here. If you think about the SV, it's saying, and again, another example, and another example, when he brought his firstborn into the world, he said, whereas the New King James is saying, And when he again brought his son into the world. Now, that will inform how you interpret what's said here. Because if it's saying when he again, when he brings his son in again, then you're going to take this to be about the second coming of Christ. And many people do interpret that way and have since the earliest days of the church. But again, you've got a couple of issues, I think, with that interpretation. One of which is just the theme of the passage is not about the second coming, it's about the exaltation of Christ. Now, my plain reading of the text, reading it from uh, the ESV, uh, more or less this, again, when he brings his firstborn of the world, I would read that plainly as about the first advent of Christ. And actually, historically, that's probably how most scholars have read it. And there's some objections made to taking it that way, like, uh, when did angels worship him at his first uh, at his first advent? When did they worship him? Well, again, I think that you can say, well, Luke 2 is full of angelic worship. And uh, some great scholars said, yeah, but it's toward God the Father. Right? Glory to God in the highest. I don't find that convincing, to be honest with you, for this reason. I think we oftentimes have a poor definition of worship. It's something we've talked about a lot here in church, right? Worship oftentimes we look at is singing. I heard MacArthur say several months ago that he was talking to a pastor. I saw this several months ago. It may have been from years ago, but he was saying that he was talking to a pastor who said, you know, we're going to try to cut down on the sermon time and, and all of this to have more worship. And MacArthur said, what's more worshipful about singing than hearing the word of God proclaimed? What's more worshipful about any one part of the element of what we do, whether it's the Lord's table, that's worship. Gathering in obedience to the Scriptures, that is worship. Singing is worship. Fellowship is worship. Giving is worship. All of these things are worship. In fact, the word worship just means to recognize the worthiness or the weight. Right? The weight. God is glorious, heavy in His weight, substantial. Worthy of us getting up and coming here together in obedience to what he says because he is God. So when you look at it from that perspective, look at the entire story of the first advent. And the angels coming and say, this one who will be born to you will be called the highest. He will save his people from their sins. That is worship. That is an angel saying, this one who is coming is glorious. He is God's own son who will come and save his people from their sin. Luke chapter 2, For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's not a small statement, is it? That is a worshipful statement. That is the host of angels saying, This one who is coming is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is Lord. No angel would say that of another angel. If we're going to use the argument style of Hebrews, no angel would ever say that of another angel, that that angel is Lord. So again, I think that there is worship at that first Advent. I read a sermon this week by uh, a Welsh preacher named Christmas Evans. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He at one time was called the John Bunyan of Wales, a great preacher. And he had a Christmas sermon I was reading that was all about uh, the worship of the angels toward Christ, even at the first Advent. So I think we would be wrong to narrowly give the idea that just because the worship was also directed to the Father, that it's not directed to the Son. It's a Trinitarian God, right? I mean, this is our God. He is God. And so, again, I think we've got to be careful on that. So what are the different options really quickly? And we could spend a lot of time on this. This is why, by the way, we're not going to seven today. It could be when he first came into the world, i.e., his incarnation, his first advent. It can be when he came into the world. God brought him into the world at his resurrection, Some of the church fathers thought that's what it referred to. It could be when he brought him into the heavenly world at his enthronement. Or it can be when he brings him back a second time uh, at the parousia, the return of Christ. Now, church history has really landed more on two of those. His incarnation, his first advent, uh, and then secondly, his enthronement. I just made an argument for it possibly being the incarnation. That's not where I land. I just think you can't dismiss it as a possibility. And by the way, too many of the great church fathers and leaders throughout history have have believed that was the right answer, as all of these have people that have held to them. We want to be careful here not to dismiss any of them. But I believe when you look at the context of this passage, it is speaking of his enthronement. This whole passage is about his enthronement. It's about when God brings him in. And, and I didn't like this approach at first because, again, I thought, when he brought him into the world, is that what this is going to be read as by these first century Jewish Christians? And then I read uh, that Paul Ellingsworth, he's a great scholar on Hebrew, said we're too often focused on the wrong word in this passage. He said we often focus on oikumene, which is the word for world, And we say, well, it means inhabited world, it means this sort of thing. But all the options, God is bringing them into a world that's inhabited, right? First incarnation, or excuse me, the first uh, advent, inhabited world. The resurrection's into a world that's inhabited. The return will be into a world that's inhabited. And of course, the uh, heaven itself is inhabited by the saints of God and the angels, and so again, uh, he says all these are really the wrong focus. The word that we should be focused on in this passage is brings again. Brings again, as we said a minute ago, a sago. It, it literally has a, a tense of meaning that says to bring him in in majesty. When you look at this passage, he says he believes that that's what it points to. And he says when you look at the theology of the overall passage about Christ as the fulfillment of all that's gone on before, he had this to say. This is what Paul Ellingsworth said about the implied meaning of this verse. He said, In the past, God brought His own people out of the desert into the inhabited land of Canaan. Now He has brought Christ out of the the depths of death into the glory of the heavenly assembly. My friends, when you look at the context of this entire chapter, this is what he's talking about. The author of Hebrews is talking about this one who has been enthroned and highly exalted over all others. Nobody else can have this said of them. Who else can it be said of that you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, that's not just a reference to a particular verse. We've said this often. When we handle these Old Testament texts, we need to be careful. They are referring to the larger passage We talked about this in Romans. You've got to be very careful not to overlook the larger context of the passage, That it's a part of what is the passage about? The passage is about the messianic Davidic king, highly exalted, highly exalted. Well, What about the next one, 714 of 2 Samuel? I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. If you just quote that, well, it's got some meaning, but it loses the fullness of the theology that the Bible is giving you of what is happening here. This isn't just any son that's being referred to. This is the son. The one that the Old Testament has pointed to. This thread that you can find of son of Abraham, son of Israel, son of David. And here he is. This is the son. This is the one, the heir. This is the one of whom we are speaking. And so again, This is the one who is enthroned as king and lord at the right hand of the majesty on high and he is the one who has received worship the worship of the angels. Well, so we've concluded that the one who's received the worship is Christ the firstborn. But what does that mean? Look at that verse again. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now we haven't even dealt with that word yet. Firstborn. And my friends, we've got to say automatically we've got to be cautious this is the stomping ground of heretics right here as we said a few i guess last sunday about begotten so many heresies for two thousand years have been founded on words like this taken out of their meaning and context begotten well that would mean that christ was born at some time right the the person the second person of the trinity is a created being no that's not what it means we looked at that last sunday but what about firstborn doesn't that say that as well Prototokos? Firstborn, isn't that telling you clearly that he there was a time in which he was born? No. Again, we've got to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Go back and look at this word used throughout the scriptures and you see something uniquely said about this word as it's used. It's used, by the way, a hundred and thirty times in the Old Testament. Now, like seventy of those are in the genealogy tables, so you know, you expect that. And those cases there is kind of a general or natural meaning to the term but there are times when you can't assign it a natural meaning there are times where it says that Israel is my firstborn son saith the Lord God now was Israel the first nation on the face of the earth or is it his precious unique chosen nation that he is working through now, we can find uh, lots of passages like this. But again, uh, if you look at them, you're going to see a similar theme. Israel, over and again, is listed as the firstborn of God. Now, what is it, again, what does it mean? Preeminent in status among the other nations. And there are scriptures where that is more or less said. More or less said. There's also in the Psalms, it says that David as king is the firstborn over all the kings of the world. Oh, David must have been old, right? No, David was preeminent in God's eyes and in God's plan over all the other nations. You can see that theology play out because there's a promise made to David in Psalm 2 that we've been looking at that says, that the king that comes from David will rule over all the other kings because he rules over all the other nations. Again, preeminent. And that's what it means. There are uses of this word in the New Testament. Prototokos, right? There's uses of it. Firstborn from the dead, right? Firstborn amongst many brethren. Colossians has two uses in just a few verses. We're just quoting from Romans 8. Again, uh, we could spend time this morning, and by the way, uh, probably shouldn't have just eliminated seven. We probably should have done this verse over two weeks. That's how much there is in this. That's why we've got to handle God's Word carefully. It tells us so much. If we just run through the Scriptures, finding the links that it's telling us. Again, is, is Christ in one sense the firstborn amongst many brothers? Yes, in preeminence. He is... Not only the first amongst many brothers as God is uh, bringing people into His kingdom through what Christ has accomplished, but Christ is first rank. First rank. Right? He is preeminent. In fact, Colossians, and I am restraining myself from turning to Colossians right now because we'll get going on a whole other sermon. Uh, that's an easy place to preach because again, like Hebrews 1, so much glorious stuff said there. But again, the entire passage is about what the preeminence of Christ in fact, the author tells you that Paul says that he might have preeminence. It's all about the preeminence, preeminence of Christ, as is this. He is the one that we worship. He is the glorious one. Well, now we would come to this question. And uh, I have some Bibles up here for this purpose. Very quickly, we'll make this quick. As we walk through this, what, uh, what is said here in this verse? We know it says... That when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says this, let all the angels of God worship him. Depending on the translation that you're using, unless you're using Septuagint, you might have a hard time finding that language. I'm going to read from the King James here at Psalm ninety seven seven. It says let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. All you gods. Now, I don't know what your translation says. Some kind of back interpret it from Hebrews to say, all ye angels. And uh, there are certain reasons to do that. And, of course, there are certain uh, places that we see it interpreted that way. In fact, I've got a Septuagint. And, by the way, recognize that this author is quoting from the Septuagint. He does it over and over again. Now, listen to verse 7 in the Septuagint. Now, if you ever look this up, oftentimes... The numbering is different in the Septuagint, so you've got to search a little harder. But here's what it says there. Let all the worshipers of graven images who boast of their idols be confounded. Worship him, all ye his angels. Now this author is quoting from the Septuagint. I just want to give this as a a word of uh, advice. You often hear people talk about the Septuagint, don't quote the Septuagint. Oftentimes, uh, you'll see this in like uh, King James only camps. Don't even quote the Septuagint. Well, God had no problem quoting the Septuagint because it's right here. He's quoting from the Septuagint the Greek Bible. This was the Bible translated into Greek a couple of hundred years before Christ, but a translation that was widely used amongst the people of God. Uh, And in fact, as I've pointed out, many important doctrines of the New Testament are confirmed by the Septuagint and you know we uh, we make this point every Christmas that those that say oh the, it, it's not proper to translate the, in Isaiah 7 that it would be that Christ would be born of a virgin should be young woman except you can prove that's not a Christian invention because you just turned to the Septuagint a Jewish translation written long before Christ emerged on the scene in his incarnation and how did they translate it Parthenos in the Greek, the word for virgin, shows that they believed that it was a prophecy of a virgin birth before Christ, before there was ever a Christian standing around going, you know, Christ was born of a virgin in fulfillment of the prophecies given in Isaiah. So again, we start there. Now, the second passage that is, and by the way, if we were to read that whole psalm, I'm not going to do it. If we'd taken two weeks, we would do it. Yeah, I think if I tried to do verse 7 as well, we would be in a lot of trouble this morning. But anyway, uh, if you read it, it's all about God's glory and the worship of God. And it's saying ultimately that angels should worship God. If you turn back really quick, or you can just listen, it's not going to be quite the same in your translation. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. This is a song of Moses. And at the end of it, he says this, Rejoice, O Gentiles! With his people. Now think about this command. People of the nations, rejoice with us. Rejoice, our God. Give glory to him. Now you're going to, I'm reading out of the New King James here. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. A lot of glorious promises there. But what you don't find is the reference that the author of Hebrews is quoting. You don't see it there. And so again, we pick up the Septuagint, which he is quoting from. And I want you to listen to what it says. Same verse. And if you want to just look at your verse as I read it, you'll see where it's slightly different. And I would get into why this is the case, but I mean, we're going to have to, it would take a lot more time than we've got. Maybe I'll take a Sunday night in the near future. We'll pause Uh, Matthew to deal with some of these textual issues. So, verse 43, From the head of the enemy chiefs, rejoice, O heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, and let all the children of God rely on him. For he avengeth the blood of his children and will judge and execute vengeance on his enemies. To them who hate him, he will render retribution." And the Lord will purify the land, the land of his people. Now, my friends, you can see here, this is what the author of Hebrews is quoting. He's quoting Deuteronomy and the Psalms when he says this, that there is a command in which, uh, now, again, I go back to what was said in Romans where they say, you know, Paul is abusing these Old Testament texts. They always say this. Uh, It does seem Moses is speaking about God, right? Yahweh. But the author of Hebrews has no problem saying we're talking about the Son. We're talking about the Son, fully God, fully glorious. Let all the angels of God worship Him. God declared, let all the angels of God worship Him. Who? Christ. Let all the angels of God worship this one who He declares to be preeminent. The firstborn. The firstborn. Now, let me say one more thing I want you to think about. If you think for a moment from history class, you probably heard something of the law of primogenitor. This was a law that has existed through Greek times, Roman times, Egyptian times, uh, the Middle Ages, England. It was you assigned your heirship to your first son, right? wasn't always the firstborn. You could have had four daughters, and then you have a son. He is, by law of primogenitor, the heir. The heir. By the way, it was common in the Roman days that if you didn't like your firstborn son, you could anoint your secondborn son the primogenitor. Now, why is this important? Even in common usage in the world, it doesn't always mean firstborn. It means one of priority. One of preeminence. This is the one. Again, what I'm trying to say here is I want you to be on solid ground because we have cults to this day that argue the Bible says Jesus was born. He was created. He wasn't eternal. That is not what this author is saying any more than what Paul is saying in Colossians. He is saying He is preeminent. First rank, glorious, worthy of worship, And even all the angels recognize it. Now, without expositing it, look at how he goes on from here. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a difficult verse as well, but let me say this. Notice, he maketh. He makes. He's going to make the argument, they're created. Angels are created. The Son is preeminent, uncreated, eternal, begotten he is more glorious greater has a more excellent name and you can see that because he makes his own interpretation in verse 8 because he says your throne O god he's referring to christ is forever and ever all these other things come and go pass away we're created it may have an end but not christ because he is god god is eternal outside of time No beginning and no end. Keep this logic in mind. Because we're going to come to other things where the author says, if you want to see the glory of the the priesthood of Melchizedek, recognize that the scriptures tell us nothing of Melchizedek's beginning and nothing of his end. It's as if he has no beginning and has no end. And who does that sound like? So again... Recognize the way this argument is built, the logic that he's using. Recognize that as he uses these Old Testament passages, he's trying to have us realize that there is something unique about Christ. The only begotten Son. The firstborn in preeminence and rank. And again, we've said this before. But we stand in Christ Jesus. And if you go back and just read the lyrics of the song a moment ago, before the throne of God above. That's what that song was saying. Hidden in Christ, my friends, that's where we stand. The preeminent one, the son of God, the mediator of the new covenant, glorious. Worship him, all ye angels, and worship him, all ye people. Amen.